thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the Word of God. So if you didn't know, a lot has changed since I was here a couple of weeks ago. My wife and I were blessed to bring our son into this world, and thank you to everybody who called or brought food or uh, checked in, whatever it may be, and we've been uh, blessed by our families and our church family and uh, beyond anything we could have asked for. And Also, since the last time I've seen you, we celebrated the Christmas holiday. I I loved how Brother Bill put it last week when he was preaching. He said that he likes to call it Advent rather than Christmas because Advent means the arrival of something notable. In this case, referring to the notable and monumental, never matched in history, arrival of Jesus Christ, God incarnate. The advent of Jesus Christ was the best thing that ever could happen, rivaled only by his own second coming, which will usher in a new heaven and new earth. So I hope that you were able to have a Christ-centered advent celebration filled with joy and familial love. One other thing that has changed since the last time I've seen you is I'm now learning how to operate on three hours of sleep. (laughs) But that's related to the first one, so I won't stay there very long, but... Today, what I really want to talk about is what happens after Christmas. How do we respond to the advent of Jesus Christ? Earlier this week, I put out on our social media channels a call to pray for light. The idea was that people would be getting together for Christmas Eve or maybe for a Christmas Day celebration. Families and friends all over the country would be getting together to celebrate. We wanted to preemptively pray that through the holiday celebrations, the gospel would be proclaimed and unbelieving family and friends would be exposed to the light of men, Jesus Christ. That phrase comes from our scripture proclamation verses. Will you throw that up there, brother? John chapter one, verse four, and then I'm going to continue on into verse five, which wasn't part of our uh, section for the month. But it says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. When the light of Jesus shines, the darkness does not overcome. So when we gather and we expose our friends and families to the gospel, we are praying that the light of Jesus would shine through the darkness and produce everlasting life in lights in the soul of the receiver So before we gather for Christmas, we wanted to pray for the light of the Lord to shine through the darkness, drawing the lost unto him. Now, I know that most of these Christmas celebrations have already passed. I know there are a few who still have things going on today and maybe even next week. Uh, But I wanted to quickly provide you with a few practical ways to expose friends and family members to the gospel at a gathering, especially at a Christmas gathering. Number one Pray the gospel. Pray the gospel. Announce you'd like to pray for the meal and, uh, that, that you're going to have. And during that prayer, pray the gospel. Thank God for sending his son for atonement for sins. Thank him for the resurrection and the promised second coming. Thank God for salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Basically, give the gospel in the form of a prayer. This might be a new thing for you, but it shouldn't feel forced because we should be thanking God every day for the gospel. So pray the gospel is one way. Number two, you can sing carols that point to Jesus. Christmas has some wonderful songs and Recent sermons, we've talked about the connection between joy and singing. I've had the opportunity to sing the first Noel to my little boy who was crying just a second ago and then soothed them. <laughs> sing songs that point to Jesus. Sing about the coming Savior. Plant seeds through music. Number three, read the Bible Christmas story. Uh, This is the uh, main account. There is the main account that is in the book of Luke uh, that Brother Bill preached on last week. We've been walking through the complimentary side of that narrative as shown in Matthew. Carve out time to read the story of God's providence and grace to send Jesus Christ to this earth to save people from their sins. That amazing story is more powerful than any other Christmas story this world could fabricate. And then number four, if you got nothing else, if you just can't do the first three, throw on the Charlie Brown Christmas movie. <laughs> Charles Schultz made sure that they had the gospel, uh, the, the story of uh, Christmas put into that movie. So if you can't do anything else, put on the peanuts. The point is to weave the true meaning of Christmas and the true object of celebration throughout any gathering so that God will work through the proclamation of his word. I'm not suggesting that everyone hearing this or here today needs to become full-time street preachers, although maybe that is the calling for some of you. But the point is, while we may not all be preachers, we are all called to focus on the Savior. Every single one of us. I hope that you did some of these things as you celebrated yesterday. But if you didn't, don't forget this phrase I love to throw around. If you got breath, God ain't done with you yet. There is still time to proclaim the gospel. But what I want to do today is to assume people heard the gospel. They heard what Jesus did, heard what God did through sending his son, maybe for the very first time at a Christmas celebration. Let's assume that on Christmas, people heard the true meaning of that day. They learned who they are celebrating, what Jesus did, why it matters for eternity. Let's assume the gospel has been proclaimed. This morning, we're going to ask, then what? Today, we're going to be looking through Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. If you want to flip there, you can. And what we're going to see are three responses to the advent of Jesus Christ. That is uh, three different responses to the coming of Jesus Christ. Three responses to, in essence, Christmas. Three responses to Christmas. So if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to go from verses 1 through 12 here in just a moment. Now, as you're turning there, let's get a little information about what's going on. This is the story of the wise men, the magi coming to see Jesus. And let me just say, it's very appropriate for us to come across this section of, Christmas, uh, of the narrative of Scripture after Christmas. Why is that? 
because the wise men didn't show up to Jesus's door until after his birth. I'm going to be real this morning. One of my pet peeves with the nativity scene is that they show the birth of Jesus and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. And then on one side or the other are all three wise men standing there right by it. I hate to tell you, but they were not there that night. At my previous church, I would, uh, uh, they would set up the nativity scene and I would take the wise men. I would use a compass and walk them somewhere across the room so they would be coming from the east towards the scene. Now, I've been a little preoccupied this year, so I didn't touch our scene here. But uh, uh, y'all better watch out next year, okay? But I really do understand the inclusion of the wise men in the, in the, in the uh, nativity. I say this, that part in jest, but uh, um, their response to the advent of Jesus Christ shows us quite a bit. So I understand why they are included uh, in, in the scene there. Throughout this section of scripture, we'll also look at the responses of King Herod and that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So those are the three responses we're going to look at as we walk through this. Let's start off breaking down what's going on in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at the first two verses first. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So here... We're setting the scene for everything that is about to unfold. We see that after Jesus was born, most certainly after he would have been removed from the manger, he was placed in on the night of his birth. After that, the wise men come in, also known as the Magi, and they come from the east and they say that they have seen a star and come to worship the one who has been born king of the Jews. So they begin walking around Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews. Now, there's an interesting something to, uh, to, to note right here. We see in the two verses that they were asking, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And that leaves us the question, who were they asking? Who were they talking to when they say that? Well, the, uh, the word saying there at the beginning of verse two, that word saying is a present participle. And that gives us the idea of a continuous Action. They were literally walking around town asking everybody, hey, where's the king of the Jews? Hey, where, where's the king of the Jews? They're like, I don't know. Where, where's the king of the Jews? They were walking around asking everyone they were coming across. Uh, and they must have been very confused when no one seemed to know what they were talking about. They had traveled miles and miles. They knew the king of the Jews had been born, but the people who were right there in the general vicinity didn't have a clue. This was bound to cause a stir in that town as they were going around talking to everyone. In our day and time, they would have been a trending topic of hashtag find the king. But in that day, word would have spread all throughout Jerusalem that they were looking for this boy. Not only would that question cause a stir, but also the simple presence of the wise men would have caused a ruckus in Jerusalem. Just who are the wise men? Well, tradition seems to think of them as three kings that traveled in from the east. In the Middle Ages, they were even given the names of Balthazar, Caspar, and Melchior. However, there's no textual evidence to say that there are exactly three of them, aside from the fact that three gifts were given. 
Now, I read a lot of fascinating information about uh, the, the wise men this week. Uh, but for the purposes of our discussion this morning, you should know that while they were not kings, they were king makers. Let me explain on that a little bit. What do I mean by that? The Magi would have been from a class of people around Persia who had powerful political influence. They were known as the, uh, for their mastery of science and agriculture, mathematics, history, and even the occult. One commentary said, historians tell us that no Persian was ever able to become king without, the mas- without mastering the scientific and religious disciplines of the Magi and then being approved and crowned by the Magi. These wise, influential men were known for confirming royalty and influencing politics. Their entrance to Jerusalem would have caused a stir. In fact, they shake things up so much that they get the attention of the local ruler, King Herod. Check out the next couple of verses, three and four. It says, when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And so assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. So Herod learns of the presence of the Magi. He hears the question that they're asking. And so he gathers together the scribes and the priests to figure things out. But in this verse, we see that Herod is troubled by all of this. Not only Herod, but all of Jerusalem with him. In verse three, Herod, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. To understand why that is the case, we got to look at who Herod really is. Herod was known as Herod the Great. Herod was an appointed Roman officer. He had worked up the ranks before getting to where he was seen in this section of Scripture. He was successful in quelling various Jewish rebels in Galilee. He fled to Egypt when Palestine was invaded by Parthians. And there he was declared by the Roman Senate to be king of the Jews. That's what the Roman Senate called Herod. And over the next several years, he fought off the Parthians and moved them out of Palestine, where his kingdom would then be established. Herod himself was not a Jew. He was an Edomite. And so to appease the people, he married a Jewish woman. He was a very clever politician. He was a great warrior. He was a great public speaker. He was a diplomat. He built the almost impregnable fortress of Masada, Amongst other infrastructural improvements in the area, he even began to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Herod did a lot of remarkable things. But Herod was also cruel and merciless. He clung to power with an iron fist. He was paranoid of anyone ever coming for his throne. He had his wife's brother drowned and then pretend to cry at his funeral. Then he had his wife killed then her mother, and then two of his own sons. Five days before his own death, which was impending because of natural causes, he had health issues towards the end of his life. Five days before his death, he had his third son killed. Because, uh, and then because he knew that no one would mourn his own death, he gave orders for three of the most distinguished citizens of Jerusalem to be executed the moment that he died in order to guarantee that there would be mourning in Jerusalem at the moment of his death. Herod the Great 
was a cruel, unstable man. It's no wonder that this man who clung to the throne with an iron fist would be troubled to hear of a different king of the Jews. All of Jerusalem was troubled as well, likely because they feared what the mad king's response would be in that area. But in this section, what we've seen thus far, we see Herod being the diplomat. He hid his rage in front of the distinguished magi. He gathered together the top priests and scribes to ascertain exactly where his guests could find who they were looking for. What we need to know about these groups, the scribes and the uh, uh, priests that he gathered together, what we need to know about them is that they represented those who were the top-ranking religious and legal authorities in all the land. These Pharisees and Sadducees may have had some different beliefs than one another, but they had great power in that day. They would have been the ones teaching the law and how to apply it. When Herod hears the Magi are looking for the promised Christ, that is the Messiah, that is the king of kings, that is the king of the Jews, the true king of the Jews. He, he knows that this group, the scribes and the Pharisees, will be equipped to give some direction. Now, I want you to keep those three groups in the back of your minds as we walk through the rest of this narrative. Each of these groups, the Magi, the Herod, uh, and the priests and the scribes have heard the same information, albeit by different means, but they have all been told the king of the Jews has been born. The Magi saw a sign in the sky, and then they relay that information to the other two groups. They've all heard the same information. As we walk through the rest of the scripture, and this marvelous scene unfolds, let's break down uh, what their response is to what is happening. First, we see what the priests and scribes find out about the origin of, king, of the king of the Jews. Look at verses 5 and 6. The scribes and the, uh, the, scribes and the priests say, They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. So the priests and the scribes know the scriptures very well. They think for a moment and they point the Magi right to the words from the prophet uh, uh, Micah. If you want to look up the reference that's quoted there, it's Micah 5.2. But when you look up that verse, when you look up in Micah 5, uh, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 2, excuse me, what you won't find is that last line where it says, uh, a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The original words from Micah say that a ruler is coming and it will be in the little town of Bethlehem, but it doesn't mention the shepherding aspect. Does this mean that this scripture is invalid? Does this mean that this Quote has thrown, and this is the thread that has pulled the rest of the Bible all apart. Does this mean that we found a mistake in Scripture? No. no. Well, Micah 5.2 shows the location from which the Christ will be born. The scribes and the priests add in imagery from Scripture, like the Good Shepherd in Psalm 23, to describe the type of ruler that is being promised in Micah. This isn't an instance of adding to Scripture. This is exegesis in which scripture interprets scripture. What we need to understand is that the shepherd is kind. The shepherd cares for his flock, but he is simultaneously tenacious and decisive in action. 
they're doing this to show the contrariness between King Herod and the ruler to come. The verse used for shepherd is also used here in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down nations, and he will rule. That word rule right there is also the same word for shepherd. He will rule. He will shepherd them with an iron rod. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This verse is referring to the final judgment of Christ, the same one whom the Magi are looking for at this moment in our scripture this morning. So when we see the word shepherd, we are correct to think of the gentle, tender care, but there is also tenacious decisiveness and authority in the decisions that the shepherd makes in regards to his flock and into those who would seek to harm his flock. When the priests and the scribes report the, uh, that the, uh, the one the Magi are looking for is the ruler and shepherd of his people, they are describing the final decisive judgment that this ruler will bring and care for his flock. These religious elites presenting this information would know that this is talking about a real Messiah that was promised and it would be coming to rule his people and shepherd his people. That would have... Uh, they would have known that that person that that prophecy was talking about was a big deal. So let's look at how everybody responds to this. Go on to verse 7 and 8. It says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And they sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So Herod brings in the Magi and he tells them that, uh, that Bethlehem is the place they're looking for and says he wants to worship the king too. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But let's look at the rest of the text in verses 9 through 12. It says, after listening to the king, they went their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child and Mary, his mother, with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So the star that the Magi had used to get them this far appears and they go to the house where the child was with his mother, Mary, and they give the child some gifts and then return back to their land, avoiding Herod. Before we walk through the three responses to the coming of our Savior, the advent of our Savior, let's take a moment really quickly just to bask in the glory of God seen in this story. Number one, our God has supernaturally drawn influential men from a foreign land to seek, find, and worship the Savior whom he had promised to the Jews hundreds and hundreds of years before. These Persian kingmakers would have been familiar with at least the works of Daniel who foretold of this coming king. They were well-versed in astrology, so the anomaly that they saw drew them towards Jerusalem. What a mighty act of God to draw these men this way. The glory and the power of God are seen in the star. 
Some people try to, superna- or try to naturally explain away the star that the Magi followed. They say the planets and the stars aligned in such a way that would have uh, made a, a superstar over Bethlehem or something like that. But as we read through the narrative in Matthew, we see that this star appeared and disappeared. They followed it to Jerusalem, and that got them pretty close. And then they found out that they needed to be looking at nearby Bethlehem. The star comes back, and it says that they follow the star to the place where it was going. A natural shooting star or constellation doesn't just hover over a building. I've never seen that. Now, a drone might do that, but I don't think they had those. This was God. This is much like his Shekinah glory that you watch and you read about in the book of Exodus as they are following it through the wilderness. God was leading his people, but this time not to the promised land, to the promised Savior. God's glory is seen there. It's also seen in his communicating to the Magi through a dream. We aren't given all the details here, but earlier in the book of Matthew, we saw God send an angel to Joseph in a dream. God showed his authority over, over creation by communicating in this very special way, this divine revelation that he gives through this medium. The takeaway here isn't that we should be seeking a sign every time we fall asleep. Rather, we should be in awe of the God who can do anything to accomplish his will. God's glory, power, and plan are painted all throughout this passage. The biggest expression of God's glory was the actual sending of his son, sending of the Savior. The Magi didn't take this trip in vain. They said from the onset that they were looking for the one who would be the king of the Jews. When they found that little Jesus boy, they were not disappointed. The story of the Magi is the icing on the cake that Jesus truly is the promised Savior, the King of Kings. If you've been following along in this series, we've been walking through the book of Matthew. We've seen three major things. The book of Matthew begins with a genealogy that shows the royal pedigree of Jesus. Then that next section we looked at showed the virgin birth. It shows the divine nature and qualification to be the promised Savior. And now the Magi provide a human testimony. The king makers of Persia testify that this boy is the king we were looking for all along. Why is this important? Because it shows us that the story of Christmas, the advent of Jesus Christ, is not just a story, but a historic event that truly changed all of history. Amen. Now that we've walked through these events, I want to finally get to how each of these three groups responded to the advent of the Savior. First, let's start with the priests and the scribes. These men had more knowledge of the scriptures than anyone around, including the wise men. The wise men would have known some, but these men had all of it in front of them. How did they respond to the idea that the Christ had been born? With indifference with indifference. Nowhere in our narrative are we told that they joined in with the wise men. They went down there to worship the Savior. The wise men run off with excitement. Scribes and priests go back to wherever they were. In fact, 
Throughout his ministry, the priests and the scribes would stand in bold opposition to just about everything that Christ would do. They may have had a deep knowledge of the law, but they were blind to the God of whom it proclaimed. Their faith was not in God to provide for them. Their hope was in themselves and their own ability to be righteous. When the opportunity came to meet the Savior, they had no interest. In actuality, they're saying they don't need the Christ. They're good on their own. Unfortunately, this is a response of many to the advent of Jesus Christ. When some people are told about the Savior coming, they simply will not care. In their eyes, they don't need a Savior. They're good on their own. Let's look at the second response in Herod. His response was different. First, we see that Herod was troubled. He felt threatened by someone claiming this title of king of the Jews. According to the Roman Senate, Herod was the king of the Jews. There can't be this other guy coming in. That's me. That's my job. How could someone come for his position? He tried to play it cool in front of the influential magi, but he was furious. Remember, Herod was a cruel man. We mentioned some of the atrocities that he committed earlier, but the worst of all of them would be in response to the news that the wise men had found the one who would be the king of the Jews. Matthew tells us later on in this chapter that in his rage, Herod killed all the male children under the age of two in Bethlehem. He didn't know that Jesus had already left the city, but in his pride, he was unable to recognize and submit to the true king. And instead, he lashed out in devastating rebellion. Unfortunately, this is the response of many to the advent of Jesus Christ. They're unwilling to acknowledge the true king. Herod was so committed to being the king of the Jews that no amount of supernatural activity around him would convince him of something being superior to him. Many people today implicitly call themselves kings of their own life. They rebel against the truth of the kingship of Christ. Many lash out in tirades against the truth of Christ. We see this time and time again in our current age, people angrily and actively attempting to smear the truth of Jesus Christ. But our scripture this morning shows us one more response to the advent of Jesus Christ, that of the wise men, the magi. They saw the signs that the Savior had come. They followed them. Then when they found the one who would be the king of the Jews, they had the proper response. They worshiped him. They showered him with gifts. Gold for his royalty. Frankincense for his deity. Myrrh for his humanity. We could preach a whole sermon on just the gifts. But what is most important this morning is that they worshiped him. They ran to him. It says they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. They understood that Jesus was that promised Savior and that he was worthy to be praised. The advent occurred and they responded the only appropriate way with worship of the one true God who sent his son. Fortunately, this is the response of many to the advent of Jesus Christ. 
There may be less in this category than the other two categories. But it is incredible when God saves even one sinner. Amen. When we understand that Jesus is who Scripture says that he is, we bow down and worship him. Amen. That's why we must include the gospel in our Christmas celebration. Amen. Jesus is the reason for this whole season. And when people are exposed to the gospel, the significance of the advent of Jesus Christ, they then respond in one of these three ways. They may be indifferent like the priests and the scribes. They may be outraged like Herod or maybe just maybe they will respond with worship. Christian, it is not your job to decide how someone is going to respond to the truth of the gospel. It is not your job to decide how someone will respond before ever sharing about the truth of the advent of Jesus Christ. We are called to proclaim what God has done and he'll take care of the rest. Amen. People's response is between them and God. We just act like that star that points out where the Savior is. So now we got to conclude by asking what is your response to the advent of Jesus Christ? Do you realize that Christmas celebrates that Jesus came to live, die, and rise again to take the sins of all those who would believe in him upon himself? Do you realize that you can't be righteous enough on your own to stand before a holy God? Do you realize that because you couldn't do that, God literally stepped out of heaven, was born in a manger, and to, through faith, give you his righteousness. Do you realize that the cross was always behind the cradle, as our brother Bill said last week? Do you realize that when we celebrate on Christmas, what we're celebrating is that Jesus became the light of man who gives hope to sinners? Do you realize those things. And if you do, is your response indifference, anger, or worship? What is your response? May we worship today. May we fall in awe of the God who is worthy. If you're beginning to truly worship the promised Savior today, maybe even for the first time, we ask that you would respond and come down the aisle during this next hymn of response. Come fall before the King who is worthy. Give him your praise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you are worthy, that you sent Jesus Christ, God incarnate, to be the worthy sacrifice to pay the price of our sins. When we look through the Old Testament, we see sacrifice after sacrifice. There was a continual need. But in Christ, his sacrifice was complete. There's nothing greater, nothing better, nothing more capable of covering our sin debt than Jesus Christ. 
that price he paid on the cross began in the cradle. As we celebrate the Christmas season, may we remember Jesus who came and died and rose again for us. Lord, I pray that everyone in the, who is able to hear this this morning would truly not be indifferent or angry towards God, but will fall before you in worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at Have a wonderful day and God bless.